programming on WSOR is underwritten by listeners like you and Ben and Jerry's, serving homemade ice cream and promoting business practices that respect the earth and the environment. Located at 372 St. Armand Circle. More information available at 941-388-5226. WSLR LP 96.5 FM in Sarasota. This is the WSLR News Wednesday edition. I am your host, Johannes Werner. For the next half hour, we'll be reporting on local politics and grassroots activism, all happening in your backyard. Coming up, yesterday, New College announced the three finalists in its presidential search. Less announced is the fact that this small college will have to pay this and the next president's compensation that make it an outlier within the outlier state of Florida. Our news team has the details. Then, Bradenton is rapidly gentrifying and local governments want to move homeless services away. That, in turn, has led to substantial discussions, not only about homelessness, but also about affordable housing. WSLR reporter Sophia Brown has more on that. Next, last week, the Teamsters Union celebrated a major nationwide victory for UPS drivers. However, some UPS drivers don't like the agreement. Ramon Lopez with WSLR News reports. Finally, as Florida law is making it easier for landlords, a U.S. representative from Orlando is promoting a law that would make it more difficult to charge tenants' fees. Chris Young with partner station WMNF reports. It's all coming up now. Don't touch that dial. New College of Florida publicly announced the three finalists in its search for a permanent president. Hidden within the search process, however, is a fact that the college will have to live with beyond its next leader. The Presidential Search Committee's proceedings make it clear that the big bump in pay the college's trustees granted interim president Richard Corcoran early this year has entered the system and will be hard to reverse. Our news team has the report. Yesterday, New College issued a press release about the three finalists its presidential search committee came up with. The current interim president, a candidate with prime administrative credentials and no political background, and an assistant professor without any major administrative experience. Another subject of controversy was not directly addressed by the search committee, the bump in pay for the next president and the proceedings of the committee seem to make clear that the college will have to live with that kind of compensation from now on. At a search committee meeting on July 5th, a hired consulting firm recommended to the committee a wide salary and compensation package range that included the pay bump the college's trustees granted the current interim president in February. Richard Cochran enjoys a salary and compensation package that is close to three times that of his predecessor. Mercer, the consultant, by Florida regulation, had to take into account, quote, compensation paid to the current president, as well as, quote, the available qualified pool and relevant competition for candidates. With that, the company came up with a wide salary range from close to $500,000 to close to $900,000,
and a total compensation package that ranges from close to $900,000 to more than $1.5 million. With that precedent set, New College has become an outlier within the outlier state of Florida, says a compensation expert. WSLR News asked Dr. James Finkelstein, author of a recent study published by the Chronicle of Higher Education. What's happening in Florida uh, is not what's necessarily happening in other parts of the country. While it is true, based on our research, that the compensation for university presidents and particularly for public university presidents has been increasing and it's been increasing much more rapidly than the compensation for faculty. Uh, if Florida has taken this to a new level, uh, you know, Ben Sass, when he was appointed as president of the University of Florida, you know, had a, a very lucrative compensation package, but the University of Florida is a major research university. It's a member of the AAU. It's a prestigious institution. Uh, New College, and it's a large institution, uh, New College is a very small uh, college. Uh, it is an, uh, considered an elite public liberal arts college, but it's elite in part because there aren't very many of them around the country. Uh, and if you look at the compensation of liberal arts college presidents, private liberal arts college presidents, uh, they're not among the most highly paid presidents uh, you know, in the country. So this compensation package at New College uh, that the current president has, we've written about and found it to be significantly out of line with the compensation for presidents of comparable institutions, and certainly compared to what the interim president was making when he was in his previous uh, position with the Florida Department of Education. It's almost five times, I believe, what he was making there. Finkelstein believes Florida taxpayers should be concerned. What we think is going on here, and this has happened in Florida, it's happened in Texas, and it's happening in other parts, mostly in the South, that these public university presidencies are becoming patronage positions where governing boards and governors are increasingly turning to, I know this has a pejorative context uh, to it, but, you know, uh, but turning to cronies and placing them in these uh, positions uh, with salaries considerably more than their predecessors made. And the fear, I think, that people have in Florida in terms of new college is that that's going to happen uh, yet again. And it's, uh, it, it should be of concern to the citizens of Florida because this is a public official. You know, this isn't a president of a corporation. Uh, this is a public employee who is going to be making over a million dollars. Florida statutes cap pay for public university presidents at close to $200,000. The current arrangement for Corcoran circumvents this by having the foundation connected to New College pay the difference. 
but that is problematic too, says Finkelstein. Right. So, th so this is not uncommon, but there are lots of ways that uh, universities get around this because the salary itself has to come is paid by the university, and what happens in these cases is that these foundations reimburse the university for uh, the cost of the the compensation package because if the foundation was paying it itself then the president probably wouldn't be getting the same participating in the same retirement program in the same health care benefits program and the like so we've seen instances where uh, the governing boards make commitments on behalf of a university's foundation, and the foundation doesn't have the money to pay. So what has to happen in that case is they manipulate things and say, well, we're going to use non-appropriated funds, which is usually the restriction that, uh, in these states that have such a restriction, is they say a president's salary can't exceed a certain amount paid for from appropriated funds. But there are non-appropriated funds that universities have as well, and so they make it up in a, uh, you know, in a different way. This has been Johannes Werner for WSLR News. The Riverwalk, the Farmer's Market, and other amenities have boosted the quality of life in downtown Bradenton, and that is attracting luxury development. That gentrification, in turn, has prompted discussions about the relocation of services for the homeless, most of which are within the limits of the city of Bradenton and near downtown. And that, in turn, is now prompting a substantial discussion between Manatee County governments about how best to tackle homelessness. Sophia Brown has more on this. On Monday, three of Manatee County's most influential government bodies sat down to tackle something that the Minnesota area is infamous for, homelessness. With an estimated 500 homeless families and 1,500 homeless students in the county, the Manatee County Commissioners, School Board, and City Council of Bradenton discussed possibilities for a new homeless shelter. But much like Sarasota, addressing the causes of homelessness and the ongoing affordable housing crisis proved to be less straightforward. $41 million were recently awarded to Manatee County as part of a national and state prescription opioid litigation settlement. With these funds, the old Manatee County Sheriff's Office in District 2 is set to be converted into a homeless shelter specifically for families with children. That location is four miles south of downtown Bradenton. The sheriff's office is already equipped with 40 10 by 10 rooms, 26 bathrooms, and a commercial kitchen, and $850,000 have already been spent on renovations. It is expected to hold capacity for about 30 families. Members of the school board also discussed the possibility of setting up a bus stop for students out front, and one other commissioner was looking into establishing a community garden. The plan is for the city commissioners, school board, and Bradenton City Council to create the physical shelter and then hand its maintenance over to one or several private organizations, such as Turning Point USA or the Salvation Army, says County Commission Chair Kevin Van Austinbridge. It seems like everyone's kind of taken this on uh, with their, to put their own touch on it, and I think it's, it's going to fill a, a tremendously needed void in our community. We don't mind doing the one-time capital outlay 
on a project and getting it built out and then doing a public-private partnership with an organization like the Salvation Army where they come in and run it because we don't necessarily want to be in the business. However, we do understand that they don't have the resources to build a facility or create a facility from nothing. The Joint Committee also discussed bringing in tutors so students temporarily out of school would have no gaps in their education, or having the shelter host nonprofits that can help residents find jobs or provide substance abuse and mental health treatment. But the elephant in the room is that, while Manatee County was awarded this $41 million to fight opioid and substance abuse, it wasn't able to secure funding dedicated to helping stop homelessness before it starts. Vice Chair of the Manatee County School Board, Cindy Spray, pointed out that poverty is one of the main, if not the main, cause of homelessness, and that additional funds to aid people in paying for rent or utilities could have gone a long way. I know one of the legislative priorities that was brought to our delegation last year was, I think, $200,000 for prevention. People about to be evicted, people that need a service, but we don't have enough counselors and or staff to accommodate that. And I know that was huge on the list, but it didn't get any funding. Also mentioned several times throughout the meeting is how rising rents aren't just affecting the working poor. City Commissioner George W. Cruz was one of several members to bring up how a recent candidate for Manatee County Administrator chose to drop out of the running due to the cost of living in the county. It's a lot easier to fix homelessness when people aren't homeless in the first place. And having affordable places to live, I know we just had one of our applications for county administrator dropout because he said it's just not affordable to to live here. Manatee County has an area median income of about $98,700. This means that, technically, $2,000 per month in rent is what can be considered affordable. Even so, this clearly is not cutting it for many, and Cruz urged the joint committee to consider ways that they can contribute to lightening the load of the average Manatee resident. We all need to do our part, I, I, I believe, and we have a long ways to go, but the county is, is making a proactive attempt. We've, through Livable Manatee, we've been waiving every impact fee we can come up with, waiving permitting fees, you name it. We've been taking the excess land we have and trying to find people to use it to build, and we've been trying to increase density and, and height. I think that you know we need everyone to be looking at, at excess land that they've got. I know there there is some, and figuring out how it can best be utilized for, uh, for housing, whether it be workforce, affordable, you name it. And people need to start looking at the fees that they're charging people and, and being willing to, to take their, their hit along with us. Affordable housing is going to be especially critical for educators, as Manatee County is currently on track to build five new schools in five years, estimated to draw in 800 to 1,000 new employees. When even an administrative candidate cannot afford to live in Manatee County, young professionals that could help to staff these schools also seem likely to look for opportunities elsewhere. The sole public commenter, Glenn Gibellina, sums up the issues at hand and the disconnect between the Joint Committee and the average Manatee resident. Rising rents, not mental health issues or addiction, are driving the homelessness. Your new homelessness are the baby boomers. They're going to be the entry-level school teachers. They cannot sustain $2,000 rents. Rent is the number one issue that is causing homelessness. The plumber, the fireman, they're going to be your next homeless because they cannot keep up. We heard it today. One of the administrators dropped out, 
starting salary of $205,000, and he can't afford to live here. What does that tell you about the rest of the service industry? This has been Sophia Brown reporting for WSLR News. The Florida legislature made it easier for landlords to charge tenants' fees. One U.S. representative is going the opposite way. Orlando Congress member Maxwell Alejandro Frost unveiled a bill aimed at putting an end to fees he calls excessive and dishonest for renters. The proposal is called the End Junk Fees for Renters Act. Chris Young with partner station WMNF reports. Frost, Congress's youngest member, stood in front of the U.S. Capitol last week in front of supporters. This bill is about standing firmly on the side of renters and tenants and working people who are hurt by landlords and leasing companies that solely want to squeeze as much money as them from them as possible. That's audio from Frost's social media. The bill bans application and screening fees for renters and prohibits credit score screening in the renter application process. It also requires landlords to disclose pest and maintenance issues in the rental contract. He also cited racial disparities. 73% of Black and Hispanic renters and 84% of Asian renters pay an application fee, compared with 56% of white renters. Frost wants to gain nonpartisan support for this bill. We hope we'll have some Republican colleagues join us on this, because this is to help their constituents too. It's to help everyone on the country. It's not about Democrat versus Republican. It's about the people versus the problem. This comes one week after Biden announced a similar effort to lower costs for renters. His plan included commitments from rental platforms like Apartments.com and Zillow for transparency and pricing. Governor DeSantis recently approved legislation invalidating local tenants' laws. For WMNF News, I'm Chris Young. Last week, the Teamsters Union celebrated a major nationwide victory for UPS drivers. However, some UPS drivers don't like the agreement. WSLR reporter Ramon Lopez sat through one of the dissidents' meetings to find out how likely a rank-and-file vote for the agreement is. The UPS Workers' Rank-and-File Committee is a splinter labor group at the major U.S. parcel delivery company. They watched as the International Brotherhood of Teamsters Negotiating Committee and UPS hammered out a tentative contract agreement last week. It averted an August 1st strike by 340,000 UPS workers that would have crippled delivery service for businesses and households here in Sarasota and Manatee counties, and for millions of others nationwide. The last-minute negotiations averted what would have been the largest single-employer strike in U.S. history. Teamsters union boss Sean O'Brien said it sets a new standard in the labor movement. He added, we demanded the best contract in the history of UPS, and we got it. The tentative pact still needs union rank-and-file approval. Voting on the new contract begins August 3rd and runs through August 22nd. If approved, it would provide full and part-time union workers $2.75 more per hour this year and $7.50 more by the end of the five-year contract. A roadblock in the negotiations had been starting pay for part-time workers. New part-time workers at UPS would now get 
$21 per hour from $16. The pending contract was endorsed by Teamsters for a Democratic Union, an activist group that has pushed the National Union to be more militant. The Party for Socialism and Liberation said it was a, quote, major victory for the labor movement. But the UPS Workers Rank and File Committee held an online meeting Saturday night to launch a campaign opposing what they claim is nothing more than a sellout by the Teamsters Union. The Splinter Labor Group disputes Teamster boss O'Brien's claim of a major victory for UPS drivers. So says the committee's Jerry White. They presented this agreement as, quote, historic but it is only historic in the extent in which it has uh, betrayed and sold out the interests of rank-and-file workers. Jerry White listed the tentative PAC's shortcomings. Uh, It includes and maintains the poverty wages for more than 200,000 part-time employees, starting wages uh, just barely above uh, what uh, are paid at the non, non-union Amazon for, for package delivery truck drivers, a 15% wage increase over five years, which is below the rate of inflation. Tom Hall, another rank-and-file committee leader, said the tentative pact is a bad deal overall. UPS made $100 billion in revenue last year for the first time ever. Every dollar of that profit represents money being sweated out of workers. Conditions are becoming intolerable. Part-time workers at Wolfport recently told the WSWS that they have been going days without eating and bunking three to a room in their apartments to make ends meet. Another feature of this movement is that workers are colliding head-on with the trade union apparatus. Even assuming modest inflation over the next five years, and that is a big assumption, by the end of the contract, part-timers will only be making in real terms what they made in the early 1990s before the 1997 strike. They will be making about $20 less an hour in real terms than what they made in 1978. In other words, it does not come close to making workers whole. Tom Hall called for a no vote and end of O'Brien's leadership of the Teamsters. There is a lot of justified anger about this tentative agreement at UPS. Momentum is building quickly for a no vote. O'Brien and the Teamster apparatus as a whole have lost the right to lead. The no vote has to be the starting point of a struggle by workers themselves, that is, you, to smash the influence of this apparatus. We think that you should join the UPS Workers Rank and File Committee and take up this fight to develop the independent alternative in opposition to the bureaucracy. Joe, who drives a brown UPS delivery truck in congested Chicago traffic, had nothing nice to say about O'Brien and is gearing up for an internal union fight. Uh, SOB lied about the contract. He said we would be on strike, you know, 8-1 if we didn't have a contract. Then he baited and switched it to if we didn't have a tentative agreement. You know, I was on, you know, the other webinars and he let it slip that he had no intention of implementing a strike. So the way I look at it is we need to organize the vote no to start with, and that's what I'm going to be doing. I've organized vote no's in the past, you know, but it's the workers need to take control of this, right? Because otherwise they'll try, you know, other ways to, you know, uh, force the contract on us. We need to organize to the point where we're able to wildcat when we need to 
to, you know, to get what we want. I'm going to be uh, doing the vote no flyering if anybody in, in Chicago, you know, wants you, you uh, this brother John on social medias, you know, uh, and, you know, want to help out with that. But I'm going to be organizing the vote no and flyering at uh, Teams for Local 705 facilities. Uh, you know, there'll be signs up, vote no signs around the place. I'm going to be flying, doing social media. But, you know, the, but the thing is, 705 has a political machine. It's going to be difficult in 705. They got a political machine. They got, you know, uh, you know, DSA and Fresno members that are going to be, you know, and TDU members, Teams for Undemocratic Union members, you know, most likely trying to sell the contract. But all we got is us now, rank and file members to organize the vote no. The Splinter Labor Group called on all UPS workers to join the UPS Workers Rank and File Committee and form local committees at every hub. It called on UPS drivers to reject the tentative contract. It said the Teamsters Negotiating Committee must be thrown out and replaced with one composed of individuals chosen from and accountable to the rank and file. But the dissidents are navigating a rough road. The Teamsters said on July 31st that Teamsters local unions voted 161 to 1 to endorse the tentative contract. But of the 176 local unions with UPS members, 14 affiliates failed to show up at a meeting in Washington, D.C. to review the tentative agreement. This is Ramon Lopez for WSLR News. There are state funds that support local governments in water and wastewater infrastructure improvements, which can directly benefit county and city utility customers. St. Petersburg was awarded over $20 million from the state towards infrastructure improvements, and this means lower than expected utility rates for St. Pete residents in the future. Chris Young with partner station WMNF reports. The funding is from the Florida Department of Environmental Protection. It's going towards mitigating flooding and improving St. Pete's utility service. Claude Tankersley is the public works administrator for the city of St. Petersburg. We're basically getting a 50-50 grant. So 50% of the funding for the project will be coming from our utility rates and 50% will be coming from these grants. And this means slower rate increases for St. Pete utility customers in the future. We anticipate it will it'll allow us not to raise utility rates in fiscal years 24, 25 and 26 um, as much as we would have if we had to fund it completely ourselves. Approximately $11.5 million will be used to mitigate stormwater flooding in South St. Pete. This is a really important area. It's been on our radar for, for since at least 2017 as being one of our top priority stormwater areas. The area is low-lying and susceptible to severe flooding and property damage. $8.8 million will be used to improve two wastewater treatment plants. These operation buildings that we have in place right now are decades old, probably built back in the 70s, 60s. And so we, we need to adjust these buildings to, to account for sea level rise and changes in our rainfall pattern. Tankersley predicts construction will start in fiscal year 25-26. For WMNF News, I'm Chris Young. From WSLR LP 96.5 FM in Sarasota, this has been the WSLR News Wednesday edition. 
WSLR News is a public affairs show produced by a handful of reporters and volunteers at our station in downtown Sarasota. Our theme music is by Mark Zampella. More information about the show can be found at wslr.org. You can also find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Thank you for listening. Stay cool. And until Friday, 6 p.m. for our WSLR News Friday edition. I am your host, Johannes Werner.